Chapter 6 of the Book of Wonder by Lord Dunsany. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Lute of Bombashana. Things had grown too hot for Shard, captain of pirates, on all the seas that he knew. The ports of Spain were closed to him. They knew him in San Domingo. Men winked in Syracuse when he went by. The two kings of the Sicilies never smiled within an hour of speaking of him. There were huge rewards for his head in every capital city, with pictures of it for identification, and all the pictures were unflattering. Therefore, Captain Shard decided that the time had come to tell his men the secret. Riding off of Tenerife one night, he called them all together. He generously admitted that there were things in the past that might require explanation. The crowns that the princes of Aragon had sent their nephews the kings of the two Americas had certainly never reached their most sacred majesties. Where, men might ask, were the eyes of Captain Stobbard, who had been burning towns on the Patagonian seaboard? Why should such a ship as theirs choose pearls for cargo, why so much blood on the decks and so many guns? And where was the Nancy, the Lark, or the Margaret Bell? Such questions as these, he urged, might be asked by the inquisitive, and if counsel for the defence should happen to be a fool and unacquainted with the ways of the sea, they might become involved in troublesome legal formulae and Bloody Bill, as they rudely called Mr. Gag, a member of the crew, looked up at the sky and said that it was a windy night and looked like hanging, and some of those present thoughtfully stroked their necks while Captain Shard unfolded to them his plan. He said the time was come to quit the desperate lark, for she was too well known to the navies of four kingdoms, and a fifth was getting to know her, and others had suspicions. More cutters than even Captain Shard suspected were already looking for her jolly black flag with its neat skull and crossbones in yellow. There was a little archipelago that he knew of on the wrong side of the Sargasso Sea, there were about thirty islands there, bare, ordinary islands, but one of them floated. He had noticed it years ago and had gone ashore and never told a soul, but had quietly anchored it with the anchor of his ship to the bottom of the sea, which just there was profoundly deep, and had made the thing the secret of his life, determining to marry and settle down there, if it ever became impossible to earn his livelihood in the usual way at sea. When first he saw it, it was drifting slowly, with the wind in the tops of the trees. But if the cable had not rusted away, it should be still where he left it, and they would make a rudder and hollow out cabins below, and at night they would hoist sails to the trunks of the trees and sail wherever they liked. And all the pirates cheered, for they wanted to set their feet on land again somewhere where the hangman would not come and jerk them off it at once, and bold men though they were. It was a strain seeing so many lights coming their way at night. Even then, but it swerved away again and was lost in the mist. And Captain Shard said that they would need to get provisions first, and he for one intended to marry before he settled down, and so they should have one more fight before they left the ship and sack the seacoast city of Bombashana and take from it provisions for several years, while he himself would marry the Queen of the South. And again the pirates cheered, for often they had seen seacoast Bombashana and had always envied its opulence from the sea. So they all set sail, and often altered their course, and dodged and fled from strange lights, till dawn appeared, and all day long fled southwards. And by evening they saw the silver spires of slender Bombashana, a city that was the glory of the coast. And in the midst of it, far away though they were, they saw the palace of the Queen of the South, 
and it was so full of windows all looking toward the sea and they were so full of light both from the sunset that was fading upon the water and from candles that maids were lighting one by one that it looked far off like a pearl shimmering still in its haliotis shell still wet from the sea so captain shard and his pirates saw it at evening over the water and thought of rumours that said that bombashana was the loveliest city of the coasts of the world and that its palace was lovelier even than bombashana but for the queen of the south rumour had no comparison then night came down and hid the silver spires and shard slipped on through the gathering darkness until by midnight the piratic ship lay under the seaward battlements and at the hour when sick men mostly die and sentries on lowly ramparts stand to arms exactly half an hour before dawn shard with two rowing boats and half his crew with craftily muffled oars landed below the battlements they were through the gateway of the palace itself before the alarm was sounded and as soon as they heard the alarm shard's gunners at sea opened upon the town and before the sleepy soldiery of bombashana knew whether the danger was from the land or the sea shard had successfully captured the queen of the south they would have looted all day that silver sea-coast city but there appeared with dawn suspicious topsails just along the horizon therefore the captain with his queen went down to the shore at once and hastily re-embarked and sailed away with what loot they had hurriedly got and with fewer men for they had to fight a good deal to get back to the boat they cursed all day the interference of those ominous ships which steadily grew nearer there were six ships at first and that night they slipped away from all but two but all the next day those two were still in sight and each of them had more guns than the desperate lark all the next night shard dodged about the sea but the two ships separated and one kept him in sight and the next morning it was alone with shard on the sea and his archipelago was just in sight the secret of his life and shard saw he must fight and a bad fight it was and yet it suited shard's purpose for he had more merry men when the fight began than he needed for his island and they got it over before any other ship came up and shard put all adverse evidence out of the way and came that night to the islands near the sargasso sea long before it was light the survivors of the crew were peering at the sea and when dawn came there was the island no bigger than two ships straining hard at its anchor with the wind in the tops of the trees and then they landed and dug cabins below and raised the anchor out of the deep sea and soon they made the island what they called shipshape but the desperate lark they sent away empty under full sail to sea where more nations than shard suspected were watching for her and where she was presently captured by an admiral of spain who when he found none of that famous crew on board to hang by the neck from the yard-arm, grew ill through disappointment. And Shard on his island offered the Queen of the South the choicest of the old wines of Provence, and for adornment gave her Indian jewels, looted from galleons with treasure for Madrid, and spread a table where she dined in the sun, while in some cabin below he bade the least course of his mariners sing, yet always she was morose and moody towards him and often at evening he was heard to say that he wished he knew more about the ways of queens so they lived for years the pirates mostly gambling and drinking below captain shard trying to please the queen of the south and she never wholly forgetting bombashana when they needed new provisions they hoisted sails on the trees and as long as no ship came in sight, they scudded before the wind, with the water rippling over the beach of the island, 
but as soon as they sighted a ship, the sails came down, and they became an ordinary uncharted rock. They mostly moved by night. Sometimes they hovered off seacoast towns as of old. Sometimes they boldly entered river mouths, and even attached themselves for a while to the mainland, whence they would plunder the neighbourhood and escape again to sea. And if a ship was wrecked on their island of a night, they said it was all to the good. They grew very crafty in seamanship and cunning in what they did, for they knew that any news of the desperate lark's old crew would bring hangmen from the interior running down to every port, and no one is known to have found them out or to have annexed their island. But a rumour arose and passed from port to port and every place where sailors meet together, and even survives to this day, of a dangerous uncharted rock anywhere between Plymouth and the Horn, which would suddenly rise in the safest track of ships, and upon which vessels were supposed to have been wrecked, leaving, strangely enough, no evidence of their doom. There was a little speculation about it at first, till it was silenced by the chance remark of a man old with wandering. It is one of the mysteries that haunt the sea. And almost Captain Shard and the Queen of the South lived happily ever after, though still at evening those on watch in the trees would see their captain sit with a puzzled air, or hear him muttering now and again in a discontented way. I wish I knew more about the ways of queens. End of chapter 6 Chapter 7 of the Book of Wonder by Lord Dunsany This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Miss Cubbage and the Dragon of Romance This tale is told in the balconies of Belgrave Square and among the towers of Pont Street Men sing it at evening in the Brompton Road. Little upon her eighteenth birthday thought Miss Cubbage, of number 12A Prince of Wales Square, that before another year had gone its way, she would lose the sight of that unshapely oblong that was so long her home. And had you told her further that within that year all trace of that so-called square and of the day when her father was elected by a thumping majority to share in the guidance of the destinies of the empire should utterly fade from her memory. She would merely have said in that affected voice of hers, Go to! There was nothing about it in the daily press. The policy of her father's party had no provision for it. There was no hint of it in conversation at evening parties to which Miss Cubbage went. There was nothing to warn her at all that a loathsome dragon with golden scales that rattled as he went should have come up clean out of the prime of romance and gone by night, so far as we know, through Hammersmith and come to Ardle Mansions, and then had turned to his left, which of course brought him to Miss Cubbage's father's house. There sat Miss Cubbage at evening on her balcony quite alone, waiting for her father to be made a baronet. She was wearing walking boots and a hat and a low-necked evening dress, for a painter was but just now painting her portrait, and neither she nor the painter saw anything odd in the strange combination. She did not notice the roar of the dragon's golden scales, nor distinguish, above the manifold lights of London, the small red glare of his eyes. He suddenly lifted his head, a blaze of gold over the balcony. He did not appear a yellow dragon then, for his glistening scales reflected the beauty that London puts upon her only at evening and night. She screamed, but to no night, nor knew what night to call on, nor guessed where the dragon's overthrows of far romantic days, nor what mightier game they chased, or what wars they waged. Perchance they were busy even then, arming for Armageddon. 
out of the balcony of her father's house in Prince of Wales Square, the painted dark green balcony that grew blacker every year, the dragon lifted Miss Cubbage and spread his rattling wings, and London fell away like an old fashion, and England fell away, and the smoke of its factories and the round material world that goes humming round the sun, vexed and pursued by time until there appeared the eternal and ancient lands of romance, lying low by mystical seas. You had not pictured Miss Cubbage stroking the golden head of one of the dragons of song with one hand idly, while with the other she sometimes played with pearls brought up from lonely places of the sea. They filled huge haliotis shells with pearls and laid them there beside her. They brought her emeralds, which she set to flash among the tresses of her long black hair. They brought her threaded sapphires for her cloak. All this the princess of fable did, and the elves and the gnomes of myth, and partly she still lived, and partly she was one with the long ago, and with those sacred tales that nurses tell, when all their children are good, and evening has come and the fire is burning well and the soft pat-pat of the snowflakes on the pane is like the furtive tread of fearful things in old, enchanted woods. If at first she missed those dainty novelties among which she was reared, the old sufficient song of the mystical sea, singing of fairy lore, at first soothed, and at last consoled her. Even she forgot those advertisements of pills that are so dear to England, even she forgot political cant and the things that one discusses and the things that one does not, and had perforce to content herself with seeing sailing by huge golden-laden galleons with treasure for Madrid and the merry skull and crossbones of the pirateers and the tiny nautilus setting out to sea and ships of heroes trafficking in romance or of princes seeking for enchanted isles it was not by chains that the dragon kept her there but by one of the spells of old to one to whom the facilities of the daily press had for so long been accorded spells would have palled you would have said and galleons after a time and all things out of date after a time but whether the centuries passed her or whether the years or whether no time at all, she did not know. If anything indicated the passing of time, it was the rhythm of elfin horns blowing upon the heights. If the centuries went by her, the spell that bound her gave her also perennial youth, and kept alight forever the lantern by her side, and saved from decay the marble palace facing the mystical sea. And if no time went by her there at all, her single moment on those marvellous coasts was turned, as it were, to a crystal, reflecting a thousand scenes. If it was all a dream, it was a dream that knew no morning and no fading away. The tide roamed on and whispered of mastery and of myth, while near that captive lady, asleep in his marble tank, the golden dragon dreamed, and a little way out from the coast, all that the dragon dreamed showed faintly in the mist that laid over the sea. He never dreamed of any rescuing night. So long as he dreamed, it was twilight. But when he came up nimbly out of his tank, night fell, and starlight glistened on the dripping golden scales. There he and his captive either defeated time or never encountered him at all, while, in the world we know, raged Roncesvalles or battles yet to be. I know not to what part of the shore of romance he bore her. Perhaps she became one of those princesses of whom fable loves to tell. But let it suffice that there she lived by the sea, and kings ruled, and demons ruled, and kings came again, and many cities returned to their native dust, and still she abided there, and still her marble palace passed not away 
nor the power that there was in the dragon's spell. And only once did there ever come to her a message from the world that of old she knew. It came in a pearly ship across the mystical sea. It was from an old school friend that she had had in Putney, merely a note, no more, in a little, neat, round hand it said, It is not proper for you to be there alone. End of chapter 7 Chapter 8 of The Book of Wonder by Lord Dunsany. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Quest of the Queen's Tears Sylvia, Queen of the Woods, in her woodland palace, held court, and made a mockery of her suitors. She would sing to them, she said. She would give them banquets. She would tell them tales of legendary days. Her jugglers should caper before them. Her armies salute them. Her fools crack jests with them and make whimsical quips. Only she could not love them. This was not the way, they said, to treat princes in their splendour and mysterious troubadours concealing kingly names. It was not in accordance with fable. Myth had no precedent for it. She should have thrown her glove, they said, into some lion's den. She should have asked for a score of venomous heads of the serpents of Lycantara, or demanded the death of any notable dragon, or sent them all upon some deadly quest, but that she could not love them? It was unheard of. It had no parallel in the annals of romance. And then she said that if they must needs have a quest, she would offer her hand to him, who first should move her to tears, and the quest should be called, for reference in histories or song, the quest of the queen's tears, and he that achieved them she would wed, be he only a petty duke of lands unknown to romance. And many were moved to anger, for they hoped for some bloody quest, but the old lord's chamberlain said, as they muttered among themselves in a far, dark end of the chamber, that the quest was hard and wise, for that if she could ever weep, she might also love. They had known her all her childhood. She had never sighed. Many men had she seen, suitors and courtiers, and had never turned her head after one went by. Her beauty was as still sunsets of bitter evenings when all the world is frore, a wonder and a chill. She was as a sun-stricken mountain uplifted alone, all beautiful with ice, a desolate and lonely radiance late at evening, far up beyond the comfortable world, not quite to be companioned by the stars, the doom of the mountaineer. If she could weep, they said, she could love, they said. And she smiled pleasantly on those ardent princes and troubadours concealing kingly names. Then one by one they told, each suitor prince the story of his love, with outstretched hands and kneeling on the knee, and very sorry and pitiful were the tales, so that often up in the galleries some maid of the palace wept and very graciously she nodded her head, like a listless magnolia in the deeps of the night, moving idly to all the breezes its glorious bloom. And when the princes had told their desperate loves, and had departed away, with no other spoil than of their own tears only, even then there came the unknown troubadours, and told their tales in song, concealing their gracious names. And there was one, a cronian, clothed with rags on which was the dust of roads, and underneath the rags was war-scarred armour whereon were the dints of blows. And when he stroked his harp and sang his song, in the gallery above maidens wept, and even old lords chamberlain whimpered among themselves, and thereafter laughed through their tears and said, it is easy to make old people weep and to bring idle tears from lazy girls. But he will not set a-weeping the queen of the woods. 
and graciously she nodded, and he was the last. And disconsolate went away those dukes and princes and troubadours in disguise, yet a cronian pondered as he went away. King he was of a farmer, lul and half, overlord of Zerura and Hilly Chang, and duke of the dukedoms of Molong and Malash, none of them unfamiliar with romance, or unknown or overlooked in the making of myth. He pondered as he went in his thin disguise. Now by those that do not remember their childhood, having other things to do, be it understood that underneath fairyland, which is, as all men know, at the edge of the world, there dwelleth the gladsome beast, a synonym he, for joy. It is known how the lark in its zenith, children at play out of doors, Good witches and jolly old parents have all been compared, how aptly, with this very same gladsome beast. Only one crab he has, if I may use slang for a moment to make myself perfectly clear, only one drawback, and that is that, in the gladness of his heart, he spoils the cabbages of the old man who looks after fairyland, and, of course, he eats men. It must further be understood that whoever may obtain the tears of the gladsome beast in a bowl and become drunken upon them may move all persons to shed tears of joy so long as he remains inspired by the potion to sing or to make music. Now a cronian pondered in this wise that if he could obtain the tears of the gladsome beast by means of his art, withholding him from violence by the spell of music, and if a friend should slay the gladsome beast before his weeping ceased, for an end must come to weeping even with men, that so he might get safe away with the tears, and drink them before the queen of the woods, and move her to tears of joy. He sought out therefore a humble knightly man, who cared not for the beauty of Sylvia, queen of the woods, but had found a woodland maiden of his own once, long ago in summer. And the man's name was Arith, a subject of a cronian, a knight-at-arms of the spear-guard, and together they set out through the fields of fable until they came to fairyland. A kingdom sunning itself, as all men know, for leagues along the edges of the world, and by a strange old pathway they came to the land they sought, through a wind blowing up the pathway sheer from space, with a kind of metallic taste from the roving stars. Even so they came to the windy house of Thatch, where dwells the old man who looks after fairyland, sitting by parlour windows that look away from the world. He made them welcome in his star-ward parlour, telling them tales of space, and when they named to him their perilous quest, he said it would be a charity to kill the gladsome beast, for he was clearly one of those that liked not its happy ways. And then he took them out through his back door, for the front door had no pathway nor even a step. From it the old man used to empty his slops, sheer onto the southern cross, and so they came to the garden wherein his cabbages were, and those flowers that only blow in fairyland, turning their faces always toward the comet, and he pointed them out the way to the place he called underneath, where the gladsome beast had his lair. Then they manoeuvred. A cronian was to go by way of the steps, with his harp and an agate bowl, while Arith went round by a crag on the other side. Then the old man who looks after fairyland went back to his windy house, muttering angrily as he passed his cabbages, for he did not love the ways of the gladsome beast, and the two friends parted on their separate ways. Nothing perceived them but that ominous crow, glutted overlong already upon the flesh of man. The wind blew bleak from the stars. At first there was dangerous climbing, and then a cronian gained the smooth, broad steps that led from the edge to the lair, and at that moment heard at the top of the steps 
the continuous chuckles of the gladsome beast. He feared then that its mirth might be insuperable, not to be saddened by the most grievous song. Nevertheless, he did not turn back then, but softly climbed the stairs, and placing the agate bowl upon a step, struck up the chaunt called Dolores. It told of desolate, regretted things, befallen happy cities long since in the prime of the world. It told of how the gods and beasts and men had long ago loved beautiful companions, and long ago in vain. It told of the golden host of happy hopes, but not of their achieving. It told how love scorned death, but told of death's laughter. The contented chuckles of the gladsome beast suddenly ceased in his lair. He rose and shook himself. He was still unhappy. A cronian still sang on the chaunt called Dolores. The gladsome beast came mournfully up to him. A cronian ceased, not for the sake of his panic, but still sang on. He sang of the malignity of time. Two tears welled large in the eyes of the gladsome beast. A cronian moved the agate bowl to a suitable spot with his foot. He sang of autumn and of passing away. Then the beast wept as the frore hills weep in the thaw, and the tears splashed big into the agate bowl. A cronian desperately chaunted on. He told of the glad, unnoticed things men see and do not see again of sunlight beheld unheeded on faces, now withered away. The bowl was full. A cronian was desperate. The beast was so close. Once he thought that its mouth was watering, but it was only the tears that had run on the lips of the beast. He felt as a morsel. The beast was ceasing to weep. He sang of worlds that had disappointed the gods, and all of a sudden crash, and the staunch spear of a wrath went home behind the shoulder, and the tears and the joyful ways of the gladsome beast were ended and over for ever. And carefully they carried the bowl of tears away, leaving the body of the gladsome beast as a change of diet for the ominous crow. And going by the windy house of Thatch, they said farewell to the old man who looks after fairyland who, when he heard of the deed, rubbed his hands together and mumbled again and again, and a very good thing too, my cabbages, my cabbages. And not long after, a cronian sang again in the sylvan palace of the Queen of the Woods, having first drunk all the tears in his agate bowl. And it was a gala night, and all the court were there, and ambassadors from the lands of legend and myth, and even some from terra cognita. And a cronian sang as he never sang before, and will not sing again. Oh, but Dolores, Dolores, are all the ways of man. Few and fierce are his days, and the end, trouble, and vain. Vain his endeavour, and woman, who shall tell of it? Her doom is written with man's by listless, careless gods, with their faces to other spheres. Somewhat thus he began, and then inspiration seized him, and all the trouble in the beauty of his song may not be set down by me. There was much of gladness in it, and all mingled with grief. It was like the way of man. It was like our destiny. Sobs arose at his song. Sighs came back along echoes. Seneschals, Soldiers sobbed, and a clear cry made the maidens. Like rain, the tears came down from gallery to gallery. All round the Queen of the Woods was a storm of sobbing and sorrow. But no, she would not weep. End of chapter 8《Of the Book of Wonder by Lord Dunsany. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Horde of the Gibbelins. 
The Gibbelins eat, as is well known, nothing less good than man. Their evil tower is joined to terra cognita, to the lands we know, by a bridge. Their hoard is beyond reason. Avarice has no use for it. They have a separate cellar for emeralds and a separate cellar for sapphires. They have filled a hole with gold and dig it up when they need it. And the only use that is known for their ridiculous wealth is to attract their larder, a continual supply of food. In times of famine, they have even been known to scatter rubies abroad, a little trail of them to some city of man, and sure enough, their larders would soon be full again. Their tower stands on the other side of that river known to Homer, Horus Echianoi, as he calls it, which surrounds the world. And where the river is narrow and fordable, the tower was built by the Gibbelins, gluttonous sires, for they like to see burglars rowing easily to their steps. Some nourishment that common soil has not the huge trees drained there with their colossal roots from both banks of the river. There the Gibbelins lived and discreditably fed. Alderic, knight of the order of the city and the assault, hereditary guardian of the king's peace of mind, a man not unremembered among makers of myth, pondered so long upon the Gibbelins' hoard that by now he deemed it his. Alas, that I should say of so perilous a venture, undertaken at dead of night by a valorous man, that its motive was sheer avarice. Yet upon avarice only the Gibbelins relied to keep their larders full, and once in every hundred years sent spies into the cities of men to see how avarice did, and always the spies returned again to the tower, saying that all was well. It may be thought that as the years went on and men came by fearful ends on that tower's wall, fewer and fewer would come to the Gibbelins' table, but the Gibbelins found otherwise. Not in the folly and frivolity of his youth did Alderic come to the tower, but he studied carefully for several years the manner in which burglars met their doom when they went in search of the treasure that he considered his. In every case, they had entered by the door. He consulted those who gave advice on this quest. He noted every detail and cheerfully paid their fees, and determined to do nothing that they advised. For what were their clients now? no more than examples of the savoury art and mere half-forgotten memories of a meal, and many, perhaps, no longer even that. These were the requisites for the quest that these men used to advise, a horse, a boat, mail armour, and at least three men-at-arms. Some said, blow the horn at the tower door. Others said, do not touch it. Alderic thus decided he would take no horse down to the river's edge. He would not row along it in a boat, and he would go alone and by way of the forest unpassable. How pass, you may say, the unpassable? This was his plan. There was a dragon he knew of, who, if peasants' prayers are heeded, deserved to die. Not alone because of the number of maidens he cruelly slew, but because he was bad for the crops. He ravaged the very land and was the bane of a dukedom. Now Alderic determined to go up against him, so he took horse and spear and pricked till he met the dragon, and the dragon came out against him, breathing bitter smoke. And to him Alderic shouted, Hath foul dragon ever slain true knight? And well, the dragon knew that this had never been, and he hung his head and was silent, for he was glutted with blood. Then, said the knight, if thou wouldst ever taste maiden's blood again, thou shalt be my trusty steed, and if not, by this spear there shall befall thee 
all that the troubadours tell of the dooms of thy breed. And the dragon did not open his ravening mouth, nor rush upon the knight breathing out fire, for well he knew the fate of those that did these things, but he consented to the terms imposed, and swore to the knight to become his trusty steed. It was on a saddle upon this dragon's back that Alderic afterwards sailed above the impassable forest, even above the tops of those measureless trees, children of wonder. But first he pondered that subtle plan of his, which was more profound than merely to avoid all that had been done before, and he commanded a blacksmith, and the blacksmith made him a pickaxe. Now there was great rejoicing at the rumour of Alderic's quest, for all folk knew that he was a cautious man, and they deemed that he would succeed and enrich the world, and they rubbed their hands in the cities at the thought of largesse, and there was joy among all men in Alderic's country, except perchance among the lenders of money, who feared they would soon be paid. And there was rejoicing also, because men hoped that when the gibbelins were robbed of their hoard, they would shatter their high-built bridge and break the golden chains that bound them to the world, and drift back, they and their tower, to the moon, from which they had come and to which they rightly belonged. There was little love for the gibbelins, though all men envied their hoard, so they all cheered that day when he mounted his dragon, as though he was already a conqueror, and what pleased them more than the good that they hoped he would do to the world, was that he scattered gold as he rode away, for he would not need it, he said, if he found the gibbelin's hoard, and he would not need it more if he smoked on the gibbelin's table. When they heard that he had rejected the advice of those that gave it, some said that the knight was mad, and others said he was greater than those what gave the advice, but none appreciated the worth of his plan. He reasoned thus. For centuries men had been well advised and had gone by the cleverest way, while the gibbelins came to expect them to come by boat and to look for them at the door whenever their larder was empty, even as a man looketh for a snipe in a marsh. But how, said Alderic, if a snipe should sit in the top of a tree, and would men find him there? Assuredly never. So Alderic decided to swim the river, and not to go by the door, but to pick his way into the tower through the stone. Moreover, it was in his mind to work below the level of the ocean, the river, as Homer knew, that girdles the world so that as soon as he made a hole in the wall, the water should pour in, confounding the gibbelins and flooding the cellars, rumoured to be twenty feet in depth, and therein he would dive for emeralds, as a diver dives for pearls. And on the day that I tell of, he galloped away from his home, scattering largesse of gold, as I have said, and passed through many kingdoms. The dragon snapping at maidens as he went, but being unable to eat them because of the bit in his mouth, and earning no gentler reward than a spur thrust where he was softest. And so they came to the swart arboreal precipice of the unpassable forest. The dragon rose at it with a rattle of wings. Many a farmer near the edge of the world saw him up there, where yet the twilight lingered, a faint black wavering line, and mistaking him for a row of geese going inland from the ocean, went into their houses cheerily rubbing their hands, and saying that winter was coming, and that we should soon have snow. Soon even there the twilight faded away, and when they descended at the edge of the world it was night, and the moon was shining. Ocean, the ancient river, narrow and shallow there, flowed by and made no murmur. Whether the gibbelins banqueted or whether they watched by the door, they also made no murmur, and Alderic dismounted and took his armour off, and saying one prayer to his lady, 
swam with his pickaxe. He did not part from his sword for fear that he meet with a gibbelin. Landed the other side, he began to work at once, and all went well with him. Nothing put out its head from any window, and all were lighted so that nothing within could see him in the dark. The blows of his pickaxe were dulled in the deep walls. All night he worked. No sound came to molest him, and at dawn the last rock swerved and tumbled inwards and the river poured in after. Then Alderic took a stone and went to the bottom step and hurled the stone at the door. He heard the echoes roll into the tower, then he ran back and dived through the hole in the wall. He was in the emerald cellar. There was no light in the lofty vault above him, but diving through twenty feet of water, he felt the floor all rough with emeralds, and open coffers full of them. By a faint ray of the moon, he saw that the water was green with them, and easily filling a satchel, he rose again to the surface, and there were the gibberlins, waist-deep in the water, with torches in their hands. And without saying a word, or even smiling, they neatly hanged him on the outer wall, and the tale is one of those that have not a happy ending. End of chapter 9Chapter 10 of The Book of Wonder by Lord Dunsany. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. How Nath would have practised his art upon the knolls. Despite the advertisements of rival firms, it is probably that every tradesman knows that nobody in business at the present time has a position equal to that of Mr. Nath. To those outside the magic circle of business, his name is scarcely known. He does not need to advertise. He is consummate. He is superior even to modern competition, and whatever claims they boast, his rivals know it. His terms are moderate. So much cash down when the goods are delivered, so much in blackmail afterwards. He consults your convenience. His skill may be counted upon. I have seen a shadow on a windy night move more noisily than Nuth, for Nuth is a burglar by trade. Men have been known to stay in country houses and to send a dealer afterwards to bargain for a piece of tapestry that they saw there, some article of furniture, some picture. This is bad taste. But those whose culture is more elegant invariably send Nuth a night or two after their visit. He has a way with tapestry. You would scarcely notice that the edges had been cut, and often when I see some huge new house full of old furniture and portraits from other ages, I say to myself, these mouldering chairs, these full-length ancestors and carved mahogany are the produce of the incomparable nuts. It may be urged against my use of the word incomparable that in the burglary business the name of Slith stands paramount and alone, and of this I am not ignorant. But Slith is a classic, and lived long ago, and knew nothing at all of modern competition, besides which the surprising nature of his doom has possibly cast a glamour upon Slith that exaggerates in our eyes his undoubted merits. It must not be thought that I am a friend of Nath's. On the contrary, such politics as I have are on the side of property, and he needs no words from me, for his position is almost unique in trade, being among the very few that do not need to advertise. At the time that my story begins, Nath lived in a roomy house in Belgrave Square. In his inimitable way, he has made friends with the caretaker, the place suited Nath, and whenever anyone came to inspect it before purchase, the caretaker used to praise the house in the words that Nath had suggested. If it wasn't for the drains, she would say, 
It's the finest house in London. And when they pounced on this remark and asked questions about the drains, she would answer them that the drains also were good, but not so good as the house. They did not see Nuth when they went over the rooms, but Nuth was there. Here in a neat black dress on one spring morning came an old woman whose bonnet was lined with red, asking for Mr. Nuth, and with her came her large and awkward son. Mrs. Eggins, the caretaker, glanced up the street, and then she let them in, and left them to wait in the drawing-room amongst furniture all mysterious with sheets. For a long while they waited, and then there was a smell of pipe tobacco, and there was Nuth standing quite close to them. Lord, said the old woman whose bonnet was lined with red, you did make me start. And then she saw by his eyes that that was not the way to speak to Mr. Nuth. And at last Nuth spoke, and very nervously the old woman explained that her son was a likely lad and had been in business already, but wanted to better himself, and she wanted Mr. Nuth to teach him a livelihood. First of all, Nuth wanted to see a business reference, and when he was shown one from a jeweller with whom he happened to be hand in glove, the upshot of it was that he agreed to take young Tonka, for this was the surname of the likely lad, and to make him his apprentice. And the old woman whose bonnet was lined with red went back to her little cottage in the country, and every evening said to her old man, Tonka, we must fasten the shutters of a night-time, for Tommy's a burglar now. The details of the likely lad's apprenticeship I do not propose to give, for those that are in the business know those details already, and those that are in other businesses care only for their own, while men of leisure who have no trade at all would fail to appreciate the gradual degrees by which Tommy Tonker came first to cross bare boards, covered with little obstacles in the dark, without making any sound, and then to go silently up creaky stairs, and then to open doors, and lastly to climb. Let it suffice that the business prospered greatly, while glowing reports of Tommy Tonker's progress were sent from time to time to the old woman, whose bonnet was lined with red, in the laborious handwriting of Nuth. Nuth had given up lessons in writing very early, for he seemed to have some prejudice against forgery, and therefore considered writing a waste of time. And then there came the transaction with Lord Castle Norman at his Surrey residence. Nuth selected a Saturday night, for it chanced that Saturday was observed as Sabbath in the family of Lord Castle Norman, and by eleven o'clock the whole house was quiet. Five minutes before midnight, Tommy Tonker, instructed by Mr. Nuff, who waited outside, came away with one pocketful of rings and shirt studs. It was quite a light pocketful, but the jewellers in Paris could not match it without sending specially to Africa, so that Lord Castle Norman had to borrow bone shirt studs. Not even rumour whispered the name of Nuth. Were I to say that this turned his head, there were those to whom the assertion would give pain, for his associates hold that his astute judgment was unaffected by circumstance. I will say, therefore, that it spurred his genius to plan what no burglar had ever planned before. It was nothing less than to burgle the house of the Knowles, and this that abstemious man unfolded to Tonka over a cup of tea. Had Tonka not been nearly insane with pride over their recent transaction, and had he not been blinded by a veneration for Nuth, he would have, but I cry, over spilt milk. He expostulated respectfully. He said he would rather not go. He said it was not fair. He allowed himself to argue, and in the end, one windy October morning, with a menace in the air, found him and Nuth drawing near to the dreadful wood. 
Nuth, by weighing little emeralds against pieces of common rock, had ascertained the probable weight of those house ornaments that the knolls are believed to possess in the narrow, lofty house wherein they have dwelt from of old. They decided to steal two emeralds and to carry them between them on a cloak. But if they should be too heavy, one must be dropped at once. Nath warned young Tonka against greed and explained that the emeralds were worth less than cheese until they were safe away from the dreadful wood. Everything had been planned and they walked now in silence. No track led up to the sinister gloom of the trees, either of men or cattle. Not even a poacher had been there snaring elves for over a hundred years. You did not trespass twice in the dells of the knolls. And apart from the things that were done there, the trees themselves were a warning and did not wear the wholesome look of those that we plant ourselves. The nearest village was some miles away with the backs of all its houses turned to the wood, and without one window at all facing in that direction. They did not speak of it there, and elsewhere it is unheard of. Into this wood stepped Nuth and Tommy Tonka. They had no firearms. Tonka had asked for a pistol, but Nuth replied that the sound of a shot would bring everything down on us, and no more was said about it. Into the wood they went all day, deeper and deeper. They saw the skeleton of some early Georgian poacher nailed to a door in an oak tree. Sometimes they saw a fairy scuttle away from them. Once, Tonka stepped heavily on a hard, dry stick, after which they both lay still for twenty minutes. And the sunset flared full of omens through the tree trunks, and night fell, and they came by fitful starlight, as Nuth had foreseen, to that lean, high house where the knolls so secretly dwell. All was so silent by that unvalued house that the faded courage of Tonka flickered up, but to Nuth's experienced sense it seemed too silent, and all the while there was that look in the sky that was worse than a spoken doom, so that Nuth, as is often the case when men are in doubt, had leisure to fear the worst. Nevertheless, he did not abandon the business, but sent the likely lad with the instruments of his trade by means of the ladder to the old green casement. And the moment that Tonka touched the withered boards, the silence that, though ominous, was earthly, became unearthly like the touch of a ghoul. And Tonka heard his breath offending against that silence, and his heart was like mad drums in a night attack, and a string of one of his sandals went tap on a rung of a ladder, and the leaves of the forest were mute, and the breeze of the night was still, and Tonka prayed that a mouse or a mole might make any noise at all. But not a creature stirred, even Nuth was still. And then and there, while yet he was undiscovered, the likely lad made up his mind, as he should have done long before, to leave those colossal emeralds where they were and have nothing further to do with the lean, high house of the knolls, but to quit this sinister wood in the nick of time and retire from business at once and buy a place in the country. Then he descended softly and beckoned to Nuth. But the knolls had watched him through knavish holes that they bore in trunks of the trees, and the unearthly silence gave away, as it were with a grace, to the rapid screams of Tonka as they picked him up from behind, screams that came faster and faster until they were incoherent. And where they took him it is not good to ask, and what they did with him I shall not say. Nuth looked on for a while from the corner of the house with a mild surprise on his face, 
as he rubbed his chin. For the trick of the holes in the trees was new to him. Then he stole nimbly away through the dreadful wood. And did they catch Nuth, you ask me, gentle reader? Oh, no, my child, for such a question is childish. Nobody ever catches Nuth. End of chapter 10